Welcome to Off Book, a podcast from The Young Vic, where we have conversations with creatives who have recently inspired us with their work here. Annie Ryan is joining us today, Dublin-based director of the incredible Girl is a Half-Born Thing and founder and artistic director of the Corn Exchange. Welcome, Annie. Thank you. So um, we're going to jump straight into uh, growing up in Chicago, if that's okay. Um, sure. And just ask a little bit about whether you had kind of creative or artistic parents or, or people who influenced you from a young age. Well, um, they weren't, they were creative in their own way. <laughs> um, they were both educators and actually they were both in the church. So this is always a good dinner party stopper. Yep. Um, they were both, my dad was in the Christian Brothers, the G. La Salle Brothers, and my mother was a nun for oh, wow. 13 years in New York City. And uh, something about, she, she used to say to us, I've been to church enough that for you and your sister, you'll be fine. <laughs> and there's something about the way, you know, they gave away so much of their youth that by the time they had us, we were we were quite free. Okay. So when we grew up, um, which was in a very lily-white suburb of Chicago, Arlington Heights, in fact, um, well, there was a mock election in my school, just to give you what okay. the flavor of this place is like, um, between Carter and Reagan, so we're going right. back. And the only two kids in the whole school who... Um, voted for Carter were me and this kid called Gabor Hegowitz, okay. whose parents came from Hungary. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> um, and so everybody else was, you know, it was incredibly, you know, incredibly white, incredibly Christians. There weren't even really any Jews in, okay. in Arlington Heights. They uh, were more sort of um, hugging the lake, as it were. So it was, it was basically immigrants' grandparents from Ireland, Poland, mm-hmm. you know, and then you know, Italy, whatever, and kind of mixtures. Um, and then my sister and I both went into the arts. My sister went into ballet, which okay. makes me look like an accountant or something. <laughs> and they used to say to her, where are you from? And she would say, I'm from here. <laughs> so we were like a little bit different. I tried mm. to fit in, completely okay. tried to fit in and really didn't fit in that well. And then I, um, my godfather, though, who was a brother with my dad, he became an actor. Okay. And he was the person who mentioned to my mother that maybe if, and there was an interest already, we just played and played all the time, mm. um, that uh, he suggested the Piven Theatre Workshop in okay. Chicago, it, right in Evanston, which is right north of the city. And, um, and I started training there from about the age of 12. Oh, and wow. that was kind of me done really great that was the end of me <laughs> no um but yeah so you did that alongside uh the kind of normal high school yeah yeah big old american high school you mm-hmm. know with the whole bit cheerleaders and everything oh. <laughs> and then yeah. that led you to nyu well uh, yes i mean what happened at piven was the pivens were a really extraordinary couple whose mm-hmm. work was based on um a theater company that they had all founded in the 50s out of uh, New York or uh, University of Chicago and a lot of those people went on then to found Second City so it was very much the sort of founder members of the improvisation scene in Chicago but my teachers moved toward Chekhov as opposed to comedy Uh, so they would always say like no phony baloney (laughs) and um, it was Shira Piven Joyce's daughter Joyce and Burns' daughter that was my first teacher 
and she's now married to like the king of comedy like the two families of Chicago improv converged mm-hmm. she's married to a guy called Adam McKay who just okay. won an Oscar for the big short that yeah. he wrote and directed so you've got these two big very different schools of thinking but at the core of them is this idea about impulse and um, acting uh, from the physical kind of embodied moment as it were um, as opposed to a method acting thing but what also had happened in Chicago was that um, people started making movies there so um, we all ended up in films because we could act and we could also mm. improvise. Um, but our acting training was strong too. We did a lot of text work as well. But um, so the movies came to Chicago and some people ended up being, you know, doing very, very well out of that. Mm. Uh, and I was all set up to do like a movie every year or whatever. Okay. And I thought I should get properly trained. So I decided right. I would go to NYU and actually. I don't know. I hope this isn't libelous, but NYU was pretty terrible. It it, right. it really didn't have anywhere near the kind of specificity or depth or depth of attention that right. um, a student would deserve, in my view. Right. And I think I think that even more now, being a teacher, um, when I think back, <laughs> it was really very poor. And I think part of the problem is they just have so many people into that college, yeah. and they ship. It's not in-house. They, they send you out to all the different acting colleges or acting studios all over oh, the right. city. So, um, you know, each first year would have maybe six classes of whatever, 25 kids, hmm. and they would go to, like, Stella Adler or okay. Lee Strasberg. Or, and there's, like, I don't know how many of them are, that are there now. But even now, and I'm sure there are excellent teachers there, but there's no cohesion and there's no check checking it's really not centralized in any way it's not yeah. centralized in any way so what suited me about that was that um i was fed up enough that i decided i would go to dublin for my third year mm. abroad although i think i had to manipulate nyu to let me do that okay i don't think it was like a it wasn't really on offer i kind right. of i don't know how i swung this by the way when i think of it now but um i i sort of said no you have to let me do this and they didn't care enough to try to stop me oh, so um, I went to Trinity for a year and did philosophy mm. which is pretty hilarious okay. so um, I wanted to learn something read something and get, on, get out of my pajamas rolling mm. around floors and uh, and in Dublin I met an extraordinary group of people who were you know this is like yeah 89, 90 was okay. the year um, you know no one had any money uh, Joyce oh no that that's not true Joyce and Yates were about to come out of copyright for okay. a really, really short time just after this. But um, at the time, people were just making up things in players. <laughs> and uh, But the sense of humor I encountered and the turn of phrase was such a, a mind-blower, really, that... Um, and the people. So, uh, like Michael West, who's my longtime collaborator mm. and husband, um, was flatmates with Lenny Abrahamson, our other friend who was up for Oscars. This is like <laughs> completely mad this year. And um, we were making work with Dominic West, who's no relation to Michael West, and um, loads of just brilliant people. So, mm. when I left, I went back to Chicago where I was already a member of a company called New Crime mm. which taught this commedia work yeah. um, and uh, just to give you a quick 
little. This is all like Chinese whispers, but basically, New Crime came out of um, John Cusack, who was one of the all the cute the American Cusack family yeah. trained at the Pivens workshop. <laughs> so John and Jeremy Piven. John Cusack, Jeremy Piven were really great mates and they went off to LA because John was already part of that world and um, they met Tim Robbins so this is like the most name droppy (laughs) podcast ever, it's really embarrassing but anyway this is just really where it all comes from Mm. they encountered this uh, theatre style uh, which was really a bastard version of Commedia dell'arte I found out much later that they learned it from an actor called Georges Bigot who was from Minushkin's company and they did Richard II or Richard III or something in the 80s and he decided to stay in Los Angeles and teach for the weather who knows (laughs) whatever but he was this master teacher and so they got this style I believe from him and then refined it and made it their own and it was masked very high very very high energy style Mm. um where you work in four emotional states only, happiness, sadness, fear, anger, and on a scale of one to ten, you have to be in ten all the time. <laughs> it's really extreme. Yeah. But the boys loved it, and they, they saw it as a really political um, uh, thing, which I think a lot of people did. You mm. know, uh, Complicite, even Lepage, talk about this yeah. kind of 80s thing of, you know, take it to the streets, man. So yeah. we did a couple of shows... Um, I mean, they did this, their first show was called Alagazam After the Dog Wars, which is about the birth of television. And Shira Piven gave birth to a television and it was like a freak show. It was really nuts. <laughs> but I was only like 18 or 19 and mm. I begged them, could I be in the company? So I was like the youngest one and a girl, which was challenging in those yeah. days. Um, and they, uh, and so, yeah, swept floors and did learned this style, which was it was really, really, really difficult, but quite extraordinary. Mm. So by the time I was in Dublin, as a really young person, like only 20, I had all of the stuff I could teach. So mm. I had been trained in this improvisation, ensemble-based work, um, scene study work from the Pivens, and now this commedia thing. So I had this big kind of truckloads of technique mm. and um, and I was bossy enough to go let's try this <laughs> so I was playing in all these things but I was also doing a fair bit of teaching mm. and um, and when I moved back to Chicago I just missed it enough to to decide that I mean in my head I just found that the people that I was with in Dublin were just smarter and funnier mm. but the truth really was I mean that probably isn't really true but the the guys in Chicago, they didn't really have any interest in theater. Okay. And they, you know, they're making like movies like Hot Tub Time Machine, you know, yeah. so that's what they want to do. It's a different style. <laughs> different thing. So I had a more theatrical vision, I suppose. And I okay. knew really early on that um, there was no training really in Ireland, very, very little. And there was a real outcry for um, for any sort of training mm. and the actors there were so funny and so talented and really really hungry so I, it just happened very organically I started teaching I thought I would be performing all the time but of course it was I had no idea what a conservative place it really is yes. you know um, and there was obviously no roles for me there but anyway <laughs> so I kind of moved to the other side and started making work and then it just kind of grew very slowly and very organically from Mm. there so there was no decision at one point to say I'm now going to be a director and move away no I mean I did 
decide to move to Ireland, mm. which is already completely nuts. And yeah. all my Irish cousins were going, what are you doing? Like, why <laughs> do you want to move there? And this is, you know, way before the boom and everything. Mm. So, um, but I really was inspired by the work that everybody was doing. And, you know, um, by the time I came back, they had made this little short film Michael had written and Lenny made. And mm. um, uh, with all the same people he works with now nearly, and Dominic was in it with Gary Cook and Michael Murphy, an extraordinary okay. actor, called The Three Joes. So they had made The Three Joes. And then Joyce and Yates had all come out of copyright. Right. So they were editing Finnegan's Wake. Mm. So I was just completely seduced by mm. this Joycean intellectual, but like do anything for a cheap gag kind of <laughs> kind of thing with mm. brilliant graffiti on the walls, like from inner city kind of <laughs> Dublin slang and stuff. Mm. I was just completely hooked. And was uh, there a sense of community that you felt you were oh, missing, yeah. like well, theatre community there? Very much so. And maybe having gone to NYU, which really isn't a community, mm. maybe that's what it, part of what attracted yeah. me to. But the other side was that I, I really wanted to perform and I still am performing um, happily but uh, but I didn't want to follow like Lara Flynn Boyle out to LA and I just didn't feel castable now I probably was castable but I felt like I wasn't pretty enough to be the lead Mm. I wasn't I'm not very funny like (laughs) I, I, I just felt like I would be I would have turned up on like friends as someone's little sister Right. I, okay. I'm absolutely sure that would have happened. And mm. then I would have been on like ER or something. Yeah. You know, I would have been like on a lot of TV shows. And, you know, I'd probably own my own house by now. <laughs> but <laughs> but what Ireland gave me was a chance to become a theater maker, which mm. I, I never would have had that chance in America because it's just, it's not, there's no subsidized culture. I mean, people, there are great artists, obviously, in America, but it's a very different way in. And, um, being Arts Council funded through Ireland meant that I could really dream up what I thought would be, you know, the most exciting artistic vision. Mm. Of course, like, you know, cuts came and reality sets in and people move on and, you know, then it becomes really messy, like permanent state of chaos. But... Mm. um, is that what led you to to really founding the Corn Exchange, that kind of wanting to explore yeah. your artistic interests, really? But actually, I mean, it happened much more organically than that. Like, like I did really feel like, you know, I felt this, this kind of gap for myself where there was a need for... for People, people wanted to learn technique of some kind mm. and form. So I, I could teach all of that. And then at the same time, that was coinciding with the kind of gay underground scene okay. and a nightclub scene started exploding in Dublin in mm. the early 90s. And a guy called Tony Walsh, who's fantastic, founded um, a nightclub kind of thing called... Uh, in this smelly, big, huge space <laughs> called Elevator. And okay. um, we all ha- were housed in this, you know, practically derelict warehouse. Space, and yeah. um, we started performing the Commedia style for, like, ravers. Okay. And then it also coincided with the first workshop I did was... Um, with a guy with Michael Murphy who'd mm-hmm. been in the Three Joes yep. so like Ireland's so small yeah, yeah. Um, 
but he had gone to Lecoq and he right. came back with his Lecoq bag of tricks mm. and he wanted to do a workshop on physical theatre. Okay. So he taught for a while, a bunch of people taught, including me, for a week. And so then I had this little posse of people who knew the vocabulary mm. that I the, of this stylized yeah. work and then we started performing it and then a fringe festival was founded but we had already been performing along the way and mm. when Jimmy Fay and Fergus Linehan who's now at Edinburgh decided it was time for a fringe festival so we were ready to be platformed mm. and um, so it really did grow organically I didn't really decide to Found to anything. be a director yeah. at all and in a funny way I mean, I'm still harboring fantasies about acting, which is really sad <laughs> at my age. But, uh, oh, well, they say nobody works between, like, you know, 35 and 50. So I'm so, so you're probably <laughs> so there's, like, fine. <laughs> but anyway, um, but I think there's something about not having wanted to really... My ego wasn't involved that much mm. in directing. Like, I had a vision about the work, about feeding, um, about embodiment of yeah. the moment and all of these ways in. And, mm. you know, Ireland is a very talking nation and our theatre is very talky. Mm. And so you, would, you could see people to this day do plays where they never move anything in their body at all, <laughs> which is like really hard to do. Yeah. So all my work over the last 20 years has been about embodiment and getting them to Physical move. Yeah. and physicalize the moment mm. um, which is quite funny to think about girl because girl our production of a girl's a half-formed thing is actually so still yeah. there's so little movement in there but I think it's deeply embodied so it's like we've I've done all this really big movement yeah. only to come sort of back to a stillness that hopefully mm. is very charged right through the body yeah and so girl is really interesting because the you describe in uh, in the playtext about finding this book or, or the book being a gift <laughs> from the gods as you describe it, um, and it landed on your kitchen table. Do you mind talking a little bit about how you that journey adapting this book to to bring it to the stage? Yeah, sure. Well, um, my husband is friendly with Emer's husband, mm. so he was in London at the LRB bookstore and saw her book and bought it. You mm. know. And he hadn't read it yet, but uh, but there it was. So that's how I found. That's how it landed on my kitchen <laughs> table out of the blue, um, uh, and um, it really, it really just deeply affected me reading it. Mm. I I didn't quite read it in one go, but like pretty much, yeah. and it was you know four in the morning or something by the time I put the book down, and I was so electrified by the material, and I it spoke to me. It was so immediate and so visceral. Mm. Um, that I felt it it could be performed, and I and to make sense of it, I often in the earlier parts of the novel had to speak it to kind of, or I felt compelled to speak it mm. because um, Emer doesn't help the reader at all in terms of uh, delineating who's speaking when. Right. Okay. So she's writing in very short sentences from the inside of the mind of this girl. So mm. you might have a line that is. Um, something she hears, something she sees, a line of dialogue from someone else, something she thinks about that line of dialogue, mm. um, a feeling of something cut to something else. So it, it looks on the page, especially in the first chapter which where she's in the womb, mm. um, extremely stylized and it looks... Very, it can be very alienating to the reader. Yeah. But if you stick with it, it I, be, I mean, I just thought it was... Um, 
deeply engaging and yeah. I'm not a great reader of text actually okay. I'm slight I probably would be I was never tested for dyslexia but I always found it quite tricky as a kid okay. and um, and even now I kind of think well maybe that helps me direct because I have to hear it to make okay. sense of it in a way um, but I didn't feel that with Emer's text I, I just could really really stay with it in a way that I can't stay with a lot of stuff I find it hard so how did you come about um, physicalizing the text, did you feel the need to, to get up and, and get someone in to help workshop it and, and work through the text at all? Well, what happened was when I read it, I felt that it was so visceral and so um, immediate that that it was absolutely performable. And the vision for it came very simply and very quickly. It, I didn't have to work hard to find that at all. I felt it should be all embodied by one actor because it's inside of her head. Mm. And the the way the company has worked over the years is very much actor-led. So one actor could play five, six, 30 different characters. Right. And, you know, we don't need any props or anything. Like, really, all you need is clarity from the actor to transform the space. Mm. So I knew that from our other work that that would be fine, that that would not be an issue at all. So I contacted Emer and said, I think that this is performable in this kind of you know, some kind of Beckettian nothing lands mm. landscape, empty space by one actor. And, um, you know, how I cut it, I have no idea, you know. <laughs> but the deal was I would never invent anything. Okay. And I would try my best not to reorder anything. Mm. Although I don't think I promised that. And I, <laughs> but I actually didn't reorder anything. Um, but I wouldn't invent any language. And how, why would I need to? I mean, I, I realized really early on I would have to cut over 85% of the book. So it was very, very difficult to cut it. Mm. Um, but I found Aoife. Aoife was absolutely my first choice. I'd known her from okay. Dublin and had, you know, played and workshop with her and watched her over the years. Um, she's a really seasoned lead. Mm, um, looks like she's about 15, <laughs> but she's not 15. She's older than she looks and, um, and very, very experienced. Mm. And that was crucial because I knew it would be an incredibly difficult journey for her. Mm. And uh, so what I did was and I'd never really done this by myself before. I always had Michael West with me mm. to kind of give me the first draft of something. Okay. But I, I really enjoyed not having him, actually. I enjoyed it very much to, to be on my own with mm. it. So I I really just went through and started to find, well, what are the big events? Yeah. And then I became obsessed with word count. Okay. And I made this kind of word count, really nerdy document in Excel, <laughs> where I... I kind of knew that the show shouldn't be any longer than 90 minutes but hopefully like an hour and 15 mm. 20 or something that because the gra the the gravity of it and the nature the the intensity of yeah. the nature of the piece really an audience wouldn't want to sit through much more mm. And then the big question was, well, how much of it can they take? Because there's so much trauma in the book. Yeah. And and it's really, you know, a litany of just terrible things that happen. Mm -hmm. And how to let it have music and not just be a list of terrible things. Yeah. Um, and that was really, really tricky. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, but I, I, I sort of guessed about like, well, part one should be about 10 minutes. Part two is longer. So maybe... 20 but if we're into 25 we're in trouble mm. you know so I just kind of tried to shape it that way and then I made like a three hour version where okay. I I started I uh, Emer had sent me a PDF that I could make into a word doc okay. and I just started um, 
highlighting stuff in gray that could be cut, maybe. Right. So and then I had to send her like this terribly violent, you know, version of her book with all these gray <laughs> lines everywhere. But that's kind of how I found it through mm. highlighting in gray what maybe we could lose. Yeah. And then, and we, did that take a long know, time, or was it took that a long time? Yeah, I mean, I guess we were, we programmed. You know, let's see. It took a long time in a way, but the whole thing was really pretty short and intense. Mm. So I only found the book in maybe January, February, mm-hmm. and had the conversation in sort of March, say. Yeah. So the work didn't really start until we were programmed for Dublin Theatre Festival. Okay. So I want to say like April, May. Yeah. And then I worked on having this kind of three-hour version for June. We had a week in June, say. Mm. And then another week in June with Emer, with like, say, a two-hour version. Okay. And then Emer came and, of course, everything got longer. Mm. <laughs> we can't lose that. You're right. <laughs> but uh, she was incredibly generous mm. and um, she loved Aoife from the get-go. And so I think that was the really main thing. I- I'm not sure... I'm not sure if she regretted letting me do this, by the way. <laughs> I think some part of her might. But, um, but I think, I don't think it's been easy for her to see this happen. Be- mm. Well, it's, but as she always says, it's not the book, what I've done. It's from the book, but it yeah. isn't the book. It's a different animal it's a different take, now. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but she loves Aoife and felt very confident that, um, that we were in, that the text would be in the right mouth. Mm. You know, so then it, it took it took time, but it certainly really wasn't me by myself with the book. Okay, you know, it was a, a process with hearing it and mm. you know with designers and um, to you bring know, it to life. Yeah, and I hear that you directed a fair amount through Skype. Is that? Or you directed uh, some bits through Skype. It's not really fair to say that I directed anything okay. through Skype. That's not really true. But what happened was when we did it, Eva was living here in London. Okay. And we had done, um, you know, a couple of weeks on it. Mm-hmm. And then there was a gap. And then there was, you know, an intensive rehearsal period coming up. Mm. And... Uh, Actually, I don't think we used Skype then at all, to okay. be honest. I think that when we first did it, we just devoted a lot of time in the rehearsal room mm. for her to learn. So we would do yoga, a lot of yoga, yep. and then kind of normal rehearsal, and then maybe an hour or two after lunch for her to learn with the stage manager, mm-hmm. and then a run, you know, of of something short. So just yep. trying to baby step it through, okay. because, it, and it really was hard to get through in the beginning. I mm. mean... In those summer weeks, like the amount of tissues we all went through, like we yeah. couldn't actually, like actually to say that stuff out loud is deeply disturbing. Mm. And, um, you know, like like even now, Aoife can't really get through the show without bursting into tears. Mm. And that's not her acting, really. You know, and I've had to say to her, it's better if you can hold on to it and not yeah. fall apart so much. Because if if you let go into the tragedy of it, then the audience just feels sorry for you. <laughs> and I think that makes a big difference to their experience yeah, if they definitely. just feel like like we're doing something really cruel to her which who knows we might be you know time will tell if she's you know so it's had a life it's, it's had quite a long life already so yeah so we did it just for a week in Dublin and the Skype rehearsals came after that okay. so she was in London and I was in Dublin mm. and it was really a way for her to just say it but there okay. you know so it was literally like she and I in various beds like in our beds <laughs> in these different cities and looking at her with her you know iPad up her nose <laughs> and she had been really it was very funny um, but it was it was a way that 
she could speak the piece to mm. an ear who yeah. would be really with her. And do you find that you're still, kind of a few years later, still discovering things, or do you find that your role has changed over, over that time? Well, let's see. Coming into Edinburgh, there was definitely some decisions and, um, you know, tiny cuts coming mm. and really some character decisions around like the uncle morphed into something that became a little bit too macho and like this country Irish guy and I felt it was very important well I think the way Emer wrote him is that he's very middle class so that so my job once it was sort of done Mm -hmm. my job was to sort of keep it in alignment not so much with what it should be or something because who knows what it should be but to to allow that sense of discovery to unfold but to sort of keep her grounded and to you know and then a performer doesn't really know what it's like out Mm, in front you know to watch it so I would listen out for my own impulses about uh, like tiny things are happening like for example in the run here in the young Vic the aunt became quite she's quite bitchy anyway but there's one moment where she turns up when the boy gets sick again and uh, she turns up the at the door and she says I don't know what to say says our aunt and it became really like really insincere I don't know what to say like she didn't mean it and I thought no she has to really mean it it's yeah. her sister so th- but that's like the one note I gave in the six weeks. So, it's a tiny moment. like, yeah. my job is really finished. It's really now about um, just holding her through it mm, and managing. keeping her supported. Yeah, that's it. Really, it's an incredible feat of stamina to to watch and yeah. to just imagine the the emotion that goes into it for such a long period of time yeah. is incredible. Yeah, I mean, I still feel like it's it's like one rape too many, probably, <laughs> um, but. Uh, and I, I do feel like that. But, like, I think if you were to do the film, you couldn't go that far. Mm. Um, but I feel like what we're doing is as close to the book, the truth of what, what I feel like the book is mm. trying to do as possible without, like, losing too many audience. Yeah. <laughs> you and know, you feel- and trying to hold them carefully through it. Do you feel that the the reaction that you get changes from from place to place or country to country when you do take it on tour? Actually, no. We we were very interested in that because mm. we played to an Irish audience first, and then we we revived it for an Irish audience. But then we went up to Belfast, who are of course Irish too, mm-hmm. but they're in the UK. <laughs> so we thought, okay, what will this be like? This mm. is slightly different, and um, they're intense in Belfast. You know, we had a great post show discussion about trauma but they were very I'm finding the audiences are by and large the same and that this is the power of this novel really Mm. that it's so in a way it's so set in the west of Ireland in you know the 80s 90s well 70s through 90s into the 90s I'd say Mm. but um, it's a universal story about you know abuse and about bereavement and about love of a brother and and a really ordinary, everyday girl yeah. who's just as smart as anyone else yeah. and curious and open and how she's getting by in the face of really unspeakable oppression. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, uh, all of that, I think Irish audiences do connect with it on a slightly different level or mm-hmm. something, um, or they really enjoy the humor and it may yeah. be, they're, they're getting something else probably. Mm-hmm. But um, But we're finding that 
the change in nationality doesn't seem to matter. But it'll be interesting to see what the Americans think mm. because we are going to New York. Okay. And I know, being one, <laughs> that the Americans are really, really conservative mm. in a way that Irish people aren't. Irish people are really conservative in a different way. Mm -hmm. Irish society is very conservative. But actually, Irish people are very different. Like mm. So, I don't know. It'll be very... Um, very interesting to see if we've uh, but so far we really don't have walkouts we do have okay. people who have to go to the bathroom sometimes mm -hmm. or very occasionally people just can't take it and yeah. don't like it and yeah, yeah. That, fair enough but um, but by and large we we keep them in the room which is good <laughs> mm. so thinking about your work um, in a wider context uh, yeah. moving away from just girl do you find that you need to approach a production differently when, when you know you're going to take it on tour is there a different kind of approach to, to rehearsing it or managing the creative team? Well, let's see. I suppose, like, practically, for the last few years, we've been trying to make tourable work. Mm. Um, we did, however, do a big production of Dubliners with Dublin Theatre Festival yep. that was, like, just too big to tour. Okay. <laughs> just too big to tour. And actually, that is something that I'd really like to revive mm. and, and very much change the flavour of okay. and do a much more contemporary take because the stories are still so um, they're so relevant mm. um, but it would look very very different for, to our original production I think mm. um, I think the biggest change that's happening for me now is that for the you know for the last 20 years I've been making work primarily for an Irish audience and being an outsider there is interesting and uh, just really seeing if I can listen for you know how they might how things might sit with them or mm -hmm. what do they you know what's the feel of the place like do mm -hmm. people need to explode in rage or you know do they want Medea or noises off or what you know <laughs> do they need to laugh or yeah. what so I've made the work really thinking about them and now I'm I'm trying to make work in a more um, international way so okay. I'm trying to kind of stay in Ireland but mm -hmm. make the work Actually, I'm very interested in making work about the United States. Okay. So um, we're looking at adapting The Misfits by right. Arthur Miller. Tricky movie. Mm. Finding it tricky, I'm not, I won't <laughs> lie. And, um, you know, so I, I don't have that thing of it should be one person. And, mm. you know, I don't have that blast of vision yet, okay. unfortunately. So maybe it's a really terrible idea. Mm. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> I'm also interested in Revolutionary Road if, if okay. I but I don't have the rights to that, so I don't know if it's impossible. <laughs> but, um, but I'm interested in looking at America again. I think now I'm an outsider to America too. So, mm. um, And I'm interested in, in working in a more international context in terms of different kinds of performers. So I'm closest mm. to my Irish company, of course, <laughs> but uh, and I, I'm sure I would love to bring as many of them with me wherever I go, but I, I would love to branch out. It's been so important that the work has come to the Young Vic for us. Mm. Um, it's the first time in 10 years our work has been in London. The last time was with a play called Dublin by Lamplight, which was in this Commedia style that played in the Riverside in 2005. Mm. Uh, that's a long time. It's hard to get into this town, you know. <laughs> um, but uh, but I, I feel there's a much greater sense of, well, just trying to keep that open sense of possibility mm -hmm. for myself. And not to say that that isn't possible in Ireland. In fact, very exciting things are happening in Ireland mm. at the moment. There's 
um, new people taking over the Abbey with Neil Murray and uh, Graham McLaren. That'll be very, very exciting for everybody. Mm. Uh, you know, hard for them, no doubt, but it'll be great to like to shake it all up. Mm. And there's a big, you know, I don't know how much your listeners would be aware, but there's this uh, big movement that erupted a couple months ago called Waking the Feminists that okay. erupted out of the um, programming that mm. the Abbey put in place for the centenary of the 1916 uh, Easter Rising mm. program. So the 2016 program at the Abbey doesn't feature a single Irish playwright that is okay. female. Right. And um, very few Irish directors that are female, very few female directors apart from Vicky Featherstone. Mm. So, uh, and I, maybe Annabelle Cummin is there too. But anyway... This huge movement has has erupted, so there's a, a lot more talk and thinking going on about empowering ourselves mm. to tell stories from other points of view, yeah. which is like the whole point. And you mentioned that um, uh, you quote Indian director Mira Nair, if I uh, yeah. pronounce that correctly, and um, you say in the playtext, "If we don't tell our stories, no one else will." And yeah. you find it really important to bring kind of marginalized voices to light in, in the public eye, I guess. Well, I never thought of my own voice as being marginalized. Okay. But when I think when I think back to my two decades in Dublin, mm. um, I really was. <laughs> <laughs> like, I really, I really was so naive. I kind of thought, um, well, they'll just see that I'm really good and mm. I'll just get these jobs. And I really didn't, you know. I yeah. wasn't uh, ever really offered the chance to do main stage work there. Okay interestingly mm. and um, and then I realized not only was I being uh, you know discriminated against but I was also discriminating against my own gender mm. from a programming point of view and that I was really looking at plays that I would think like I wanted to do plays that would speak to the most amount of people yeah. so I was looking at famous plays by men generally or even in my own work with Michael West making that together um, you know the protagonist would be male mm. and, and you know to think well what's who's at the center point of this story what mm. is the conscious it's a male consciousness and so yeah our work has been male mm. generally about men until now mm. and so uh I hope I never go back. <laughs> Not to say I'm sure I'll do play it. Like I'd love to do King Lear or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, Chekhov and Ibsen and mm. you know, but I, I would be very mindful of how I would think about those productions, mm -hmm. about the casting, and about um, about what it's saying to yeah. not just gender issues but racial issues and social issues and mm. you know just trying to drive that. And I guess you would you would Dream. find different things taking that dif to different countries that may mean different things. I guess if you are especially working with local people or local actors, yeah. they'll all come at it from a different aspect. Which well, indeed, I, I did a workshop at the National Theatre Studio a couple of years ago, and it was mainly Irish people because mm. they knew me. So okay. and it was in this commedia style, which is really hard. Mm. So I needed a few people who knew what the hell I was talking about. Yeah. But there were a few British actors there who were like, "Wow, this is so different." And I was sort of like, I always think of it as a cousin to the Lecoq work, mm -hmm. which it really is. But it is, it is, it's, it is a different flavor. And they found the the approach to be more challenging than I expected them to, or something. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. But uh, great to be in a in a different town, you know. Mm. Great to shake it up, and um, you know, 
this quote by, uh, you know, Mira about uh, our stories, mm. like that includes everybody. It also includes men and includes, mm. you know, but it just is about really, I think, tapping deeply into um, trying to open up our own compassion for ourselves and our okay. own compassion for other people. That's brilliant. Well, um, Annie Ryan, thank you very much for your time today. It's been thank brilliant you. to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Off Book by The Young Vic. If you'd like to hear more conversations with some of the most exciting people in theatre, subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes. <laughs>